You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Then, um, welcome everyone to the last lecture of the 2018 Central Eurasian Studies Summer Institute. As a reminder, um, like I said, this is our last lecture for the summer, but the, the Krika lecture series will start up again in the fall on September 6th with a faculty roundtable. But now it is my pleasure to welcome Christopher Witzel for his talk on fieldwork tips in Eurasia. Witzel received his MA in Sociology and Central Asian Studies, as well as PhD in Sociology from Indiana University, and is now Associate Professor of Sociology at North Dakota State University. He has been involved with education in Central Asia since 1999, including teaching English in Uzbekistan, conducting fieldwork in Tajikistan, and most recently working at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. He has published several articles addressing education and inequality of access, including trends and inequality in the Soviet and post-Soviet periods, gender differences, and other social inequalities in education. In addition to his academic endeavors, Professor Witzel has worked with international organizations like UNICEF Tajikistan and the Open Society Foundation on projects about education as well as social aspects of poverty in Tajikistan. So please join me in welcoming Professor Witzel. So welcome everyone. Uh, thank you so much for coming and uh, enjoying this talk after you finished your exams on the last <laughs> week. I was thinking of trying to schedule earlier, but I was away out of the country for a lot of July, so I wasn't able to make it. But hopefully um, this is kind of set up as just a lot of kind of tips, things to think about. Uh, in the field and then also to provide some resources for those of you planning to go into the field and conduct field work. I think uh, what I'll uh, begin doing is just start off with some of the various tips that I was uh, thinking about. And uh, one of the first things, of course, is to become familiar with the potential risks. Often what happens in our academic work and often what happens with your committee members are your committee members are very interested in what methods you're going to be using, uh, what theory you're doing, how you're addressing the field. Not always are your advisors aware of the particular context where you're going. And so you could get through most of your committee work, your advising, get ready to enter the field and not even think about the risks that are there. So there's various ways that you can become familiar with the potential risks. Uh, one of the easiest is to talk to people who've recently returned from the field. I was informed some of you have recently returned from the field or have been out into the field in the last year or so, so you probably have even better, more up-to-date information than I have. It really is invaluable to talk to people who've come back from the field if you're able to because the situation changes so quickly in so many of the contexts in which, uh, in which we work. So then I would also uh, recommend uh, the Central Eurasian Studies Society did a fieldwork safety report that is available on their website. 
A lot of the resources I'm mentioning here, I can, I'll bring up at the end and give you some access to the resources, but you're of course welcome to record it in various ways. Um, but uh, this was spurred in about 2014, 2015, to look at what types of uh, safety issues and risks people are experiencing in the field. Um, I worked on the task force committee with this, and we asked people a quick question of how has risks changed since 2005. Uh, you can see that uh, a handful of people did feel that it decreased. Uh, some say it hasn't changed, and some say it has changed quite a bit. We also asked them, uh, since 2013, how it has changed, and we have uh, even more people even say not changed or increased a lot or increased in some way. So those are uh, different, uh, that's a source that you could look at. The report, this is just kind of a small aspect of the report. The report has a lot of narrative style. We asked and interviewed people as well as asking the survey questions, and so there's a good amount of, of information there about the types of risk that you would have uh, seen. Also, another recommendation is just read the recently published research. So Central Asian survey, this is focused a lot. My area is Central Asia, and I knew several of you were going to Central Asia, so it's focused on that. But the first issue of this year from Central Asian Survey specifically focus on security issues. And we have uh, a piece that uh, came out from Edward Lemon and then also, also uh, Helen Thibault. And just in reading their work on authoritarianism in Tajikistan, she happens to mention an opening story where the police stopped by her apartment, noticed who her guests were in her, her apartment, and then that led her on, uh, as an opening narrative to talk about her exploration of authority structures, extremism, and Islam within Tajikistan. It's not the title, it's not what you have maybe have noticed, but you might not have even thought previously that you might have security officials just stop by your door from time to time. And now just from uh, reading that type of research, it's there. Artemy uh, Kalinowski just published a book recently about socialist development. His opening chapter, Introduction into Why He's Interested in the Research, has a great section of him trying to uh, access the archives and then talks about the weeks that he waited to access the archives, how he uh, got into the archives, and then actually how, while waiting for the archives, he began interviewing people in the waiting room, and that took him off onto a whole other project. The narrative entrance to the uh, study, uh, to his greater work, more about uh, Norek Dam and building the dam at, this, at that time in Tajikistan, but through reading that research, you become familiar, you start learning these stories. That, that people often have or don't always share. Uh, there's also published books and articles on conducting field work. So we have from University of Wisconsin Press from the year 2000 is Fieldwork Dilemmas. And often several of us that are going to the field aren't necessarily based in anthropology. So, you know, the subtitle of, of this is Anthropologists in Post-Socialist Societies. It's still great to see what the, uh, the folks there have uh, encountered, what they're learning, and there are several chapters that are useful. A book that was just published in 2017 comes from the education field, 
And although most people are doing education research, they're looking at power dynamics, status, how they access respondents, how they work within those fields, and so there's a lot of useful articles in there as well. Uh, I think there's a couple of also book chapters specifically on IRBs or ethical research boards at institutions and how you might navigate those or problems and issues that researchers have with those, which will be a part later on in the text. This other uh, book that's listed here, Research Ethics and Risk in the Authoritarian Field, was just published this year, and even better for uh, several people, it's open access. It's a little bit more extreme. It's talking specifically about risks that you might face or ethical issues that you come across, specifically in authoritarian states. So it might be a bit more extreme than the uh, cases that uh, we're looking at. But it's also, again, things for you to take account of as you begin to enter the field. And again, at the end, I can present a resource where I have these listed and even a link um, to this book that's recently come out. So then, as you look across and begin to assess risk, some of the things that I wanted to talk about is that we have uh, basically what I would consider two ba basic categories of safety or risk. Some of it is basic travel safety. Most people in this room are probably very well traveled. Uh, as you go to another country, as you're going to uh, countries that might not be have as great of service, uh, regularly uh, maintained roads or water and sanitation to the various levels, you know a lot of those different aspects. Uh, but there's also the other category that I have of political safety or political risk. And one of the key things that is important for me to bring up is that not only do you have that as an individual, but you have to look at your greater impact of what you're doing in society. So having worked in Tajikistan and followed other people who've come along, uh, respondents who are left and who have talked to people about sensitive topics, it kind of becomes known that they're someone who shared about sensitive topics. Uh, and they face issues and also research, uh, research assistants often kind of face issues for having helped uh, foreign researchers, depending on the sensitivity of the topic. My topic in general has been education, girls' education, those types of things, so I haven't faced uh, very many issues with sensitive topics, but uh, you would want to definitely think of that because there are examples uh, going forward. If we think of basic travel safety, these are all pictures from Uzbekistan. These are cars you might see on the road, not necessarily, um, but they're sharing the road with you. So as you're getting ready to cross the road, as you're thinking of traveling along, the fact that it's a cash economy and the, the uh, large amounts that you'll be carrying with you. I still remember going to the market and being scared because I had 10,000 Zoom in my pocket but everybody had that because that's how much you needed to go shopping. Um, and so just being aware of, of the fact that you might be using lots of cash, paying attention to the road, what types of vehicles you're getting into, and the rest. One of the tips I would connect with this that has come from uh, my colleagues who work in international organizations, 
they're always surprised uh, because they go through specific training for the context in which they are in. If they're working with OSCE, Open Society Foundations, or UNICEF, they're not allowed to get into certain vehicles or go to certain places or the rest because they're paying attention to the safety. So my friends in international organizations often talk about why us academics are not really trained in this hostile environment awareness training. That might be more intense than we would actually need. Uh, but you, uh, if you uh, look up some of the resources online, you could, they're going to cover issues of travel and safety. In some cases, they talk specifically about uh, self-defense and prevention of personal attacks. And then even in the case that you'd be driving overseas, they have those types of things. So it's maybe perhaps more extreme than what we would personally need to be prepared for, but it's good to think about those aspects as you prepare to get into the field. Some of these things have happened to me along the way. So uh, I was lucky enough once to go overland from Samarkand to Bishkek, and I was in a car like this. Uh, we stopped uh, to fix the tire uh, probably about 10 times. I enjoyed it because it follows the river, so I would go and jump in the river while they were fixing the tire. But then later on, I was thinking, wow, what? No, I hadn't told it. Well, I guess the people, I was on my way to a conference at the American University there. So the people there knew uh, that I was coming, but no one else really knew. I hadn't you know, recorded anything about it, and some things could have happened to me along the road. In talking with other colleagues, they talk, they gave tips to make sure someone else knows where you're going. Nowadays, it's very easy to take pictures of the taxi plates. It's pretty common that people will do that. Often, a way that you're moving across the country is you go to the local place where cars going to these uh, different uh, cities are based at, and you just kind of talk to the person who's there and get in the car and travel on. So it could be anyone with any car sitting there. And so, you know, a very good basic tip would be making sure people uh, know. Often people do work with research assistants, and some of the reason why they have a research assistants specifically is to have somebody accompanying them in the field and going along with them. Uh, and so uh, that's also a tip that could be considered. I think it's very important to talk about the identity differences within risk. We have had um, women, especially when we're talking in the uh, Tajikistan or Central Asian context, that have been at greater risk. There's very different gender norms guiding relationships. When I was in graduate school, and uh, I would hear stories of the girls coming back from the field, not necessarily knowing or trying to be friends with whoever they're being friends with, and then the guys kind of taking it the wrong way, not really understanding that uh, they were just friends because we have lots of friendships uh, across, across genders here in the U.S. I don't know how much this is documented as far as safety issues, and it's hard for me to come up with resources uh, off the top of my head. Um, most of it comes from personal stories and talking with uh, female colleagues ha who have gone overseas. Um, but I'm also welcome to, if you have heard of resources, welcome to, to hear that. 
unfortunately, one of the kind of most bold uh, examples of at least trying to inform people of what could happen in the field is a grad school acquaintance of mine went ahead, I think, just this last year and wrote a pretty bold and explicit, detailed uh, understanding of her sexual assault while she was in the field. Uh, I think that happened five to six years ago, um, but it was something that happened and she shared about it. I believe it's openly available on a blog, so if you would want to know that specifically, I can point you in that direction uh, afterwards or through email. Uh, Minority status also affects risk. Just last night, driving uh, down here, I was listening to uh, public radio, and Terrell Starr was talking about his time in Ukraine, uh, talking about uh, some of the uh, uh, different issues that he faced, just simply walking down the street and being verbally attacked or physically uh, bothered and harassed uh, while in Ukraine and in Russia. So uh, lots of his information is out there, um, depending on minority status. Uh, Also, sexual orientation and trans status also definitely affects uh, the field and how you're working in the field. Nationality also affects what's happening. So we have a variety of researchers who uh, are uh, from uh, countries of Eurasia uh, and then traveling back to Eurasia in some way and they are at greater risk than some of us that are not citizens of the countries. There's more at stake and if they're dual citizens then they're having troubles and issues that will come up later as we uh, talk about things. But again that kind of underscores as you're working with your respondents and you're working with research assistants, if you're talking about sensitive topics at all, you'll want to think through what the identity differences could be in in risk and the different risks assessments there. Uh, There's also, we talked about kind of those uh, basic safety or travel risks that you might have. We can also look at political risk. How many of you are aware of the case of uh, Savikov? Yeah, so this was just in the last four to five years, a University of Toronto graduate student who uh, was a uh, citizen of Tajikistan, was arrested while doing field work. They interpreted his work as on a sensitive topic. He was arrested uh, in jail for at least five weeks, and that's actually uh, the event that kind of spurred the Central Eurasian uh, Studies Society to do their field work safety and risk report. Uh, and so, and there's other stories from around the world of graduate students who have been in, uh, in jail, detained, or followed. Uh, some of my colleagues from geography talk about having to be out in the field and mapping what's going on and accidentally wandering into security areas they didn't realize were security areas. Uh, then they're followed for quite a bit. Other, I, I have grad school colleagues uh, that were studying security issues who know specifically that they were um, you know, not uh, invited to go to certain areas and also followed and detained, et cetera. Um, and so um, organizations that support you could be harassed. 
And again, as I mentioned a few times, research assistants and, and informants. Uh, unfortunately, the worst case of this that I knew of is that someone had come in to do PhD work on kind of the opposition forces during the Civil War in Tajikistan. Uh, the research assistant accompanied them to the opposition areas and interviewed and the rest. And the researcher went back to the West and uh, came back to have a successful career and the research assistant just couldn't get into the academic world, was blackballed in that way, uh, and then also was harassed by the security agencies, etc. So as you go out into the field and as you work with people, uh, just be aware that there are, there are also consequences. So uh, I thought it was important to put an aspect uh, as far as dealing with the state. And I kind of have this as a bridge between safety and ethics. So the first part of the talk was looking specifically at what are the different tips that you could look at for safety and lots of those we might be mindful of. Dealing with the state is something that you'd need to kind of think through or talk through. There's uh, laws governing research in each country. They could change. They could be completely unclear. There could be just generally research done by foreigners should be approved by such and such a ministry, but a ministry might uh, uh, not know uh, that they have that purpose. Uh, an article, <laughs> and so that they would then end up shifting you to another place to get approval to then shift you to another place to get approval, um, and it's often unclear. In the uh, Central Asian Survey articles about security issues, there's a, a fantastic article by, um, they've put together three graduate students, uh, one who is from Kyrgyzstan and two who are from the West, and they kind of talked about the ethics and safety of research, and then uh, talked about some of the different tips that you would uh, look for in how you uh, would go about conducting research. And I was very excited to begin reading because one of the first subtopic areas were laws that pertain to research in Kyrgyzstan. And I thought, yes, okay, great. Well, I'll learn what, I can't wait to learn what this is. And it says they're unclear and it's, it should be this way and the rest. And I thought, well, okay, that's, that's known. Um, so each of the countries is going to have some sort of process and uh, most likely it's going to be cumbersome if you've done some of the reading or talked to people before. Uh, you begin hearing about the weeks that they're waiting in the wings to then uh, look at what's happening. Often we, we are able to travel with the support of an organization. So I would um, ask your sponsoring organization if they have any tips about where you're supposed to go. Um, I've previously been fortunate enough to go with American Councils. They have a local office that's there. I've also gone in the past with IREX. They also had a, a local office there that was working. Uh, and so they know, are up to date with the current uh, laws. One of the tips that kind of comes from several of the uh, colleagues that I work with is uh, focusing on networks and creating networks. And I just have blankly here, create networks with scholars to learn how to navigate the bureaucracy. So <laughs> some of you uh, fall under that as scholars who've just returned from being in the field. Uh, there's also chances to do a language study in the field as well to get to know that. 
often the, uh, the field of Eurasian uh, social science studies in general is so small that you can reach out to most of the professors and most of the professors are happy to share uh, tips with what, what's the latest information, how do you go about it, what are you uh, looking for, uh, and so you can reach uh, uh, scholars that way. But one of the most overlooked areas as far as a group of scholars to think about are the local scholars. Uh, scholars that are based there at the universities or within the Academy of Sciences trying to work currently. Many of them are working on various uh, contemporary topics and historical topics. Many of them have uh, the information on how to get into the archive that you would really like to get into. Many of them um, ha uh, know uh, which director is the one who can give approval. And also they're in a uh, new situation academically where several of them are also looking to publish in the future and make some of those connections. And so often we're not as uh, connected uh, and we're not connected as well to uh, scholars within the region and universities within the region. And uh, you should definitely try to make some of those connections to help um, in navigating the state, uh, navigating your research time that's there. So as I said, the navigating the state for me is kind of a bridge between the safety aspect and the ethics aspect because you need to think about how you're going to access people uh, in the field. So within the topic of ethics, we have kind of a whole we have a couple of things to consider. So first of all, just about, I'm sure the majority of people in the room have to go through a US-based ethics review process, most likely called the IRB. And so one of the things that you have to jump through are all of the US-based IRB uh, procedures. And often the complaints from people in the field are that IRB is set up very well to maybe look at um, medical research in the U.S. or uh, natural sciences research uh, in the U.S., uh, but not necessarily good for international field work. But I know, at least at the university that I work at, all students are required to have the IRB letter of approval as a part of their dissertation or thesis before it can go to the graduate school. So it's uh, a hurdle that you definitely um, must cross. The thing is to then think about are what are what are the principles that go beyond this? And so this actually has become an area of research for me. Uh, in the last uh, year or two, I worked uh, along with Martha Merrill, and we put together kind of a project specifically on um, barriers that US-based ethics uh, research boards place on researchers who are trying to work overseas. And then our latest project that we have is that we're working on trying to figure out what a culturally sensitive informed consent process would be for uh, Central Eurasia. Uh, so um, when we did our study in the past, just kind of one of the things that they talked about and that, which I'm sure you'll experience if you haven't experienced already is IRB is not uh, familiar with the context of where you're working. So you'll see 
or probably have heard already the theme of time in, uh, that I've brought up uh, once or twice. And again, even going through IRB at your own home institution most likely will take time. One of our respondents said specifically that you know, they have some off-base questions, they're not really familiar with the context, but uh, if you do inform them, let them know of the way that uh, the context in which you're working, the things that you're concerned about, um, mostly different aspects have gone through uh, the IRB. How many of you know whether or not your IRB allows for verbal informed consent? And what's the difference? I do know in Wisconsin, yes, just because I interviewed people who <laughs> had been at Wisconsin, so that they talked about how uh, great it was. Um, but one, that's one of the kind of the key aspects. You probably are familiar with studies. Again, kind of the gold standard or what lots of universities like is they loved the signed forms with dates specifically because IRB has become a way to protect the universities from any issues if someone complains to the federal government or to another authority that this study was involved in a certain way, they can go back to the signed document and say, well, you signed up to participate in this study. So one of the uh, largest difficulties that uh, folks that have been in the field have come across specifically is informed consent. And that's mostly because of how the ideal, uh, the ideal is set up where it is a written um, form. But you can hear, so um, these are uh, answers from our respondents when we were asking about that. You can see that culturally there's a huge mistrust of documents. Um, and then you have the IRB's expectations that you're trying to battle. Some of our uh, respondents also talked about the difference of informal and formal relationships. A lot of the way that you end up accessing people to talk through are um, the informal relationships that exist. They're not talking to you because you have a forum, they're talking to you because of the relationship that you've developed or because of uh, how you've been introduced to them, etc. And so, um, just then now pulling out a form to try and protect them makes them all the more wary of, of what's happening. One of the, in our latest round of interviews, one of the interesting things that came up is also that not having a signed form, if you're working on sensitive topics, not having a signed form allows the people to deny that they were part of this process. Uh, because it becomes hearsay, you know, I, did I agree or did I not agree? Um, there's not a written document with their signature that says they participated in this study. It's just kind of word of, uh, word of mouth or an agreement in that way. So that is a way to protect individuals as well uh, if you are working on the uh, sensitive topics. So one of some of the things to think about one of the things that I think is important to think about is what is informed consent in general. So mo maybe many of us think right away that it's a signed form, but informed consent is a lot more of a longer term process. Uh, if you think of your own involvement in studies, when is it that you agreed to do the study? Maybe a friend was saying, hey, I have a class project. Can you help me? I just need to practice interviewing. 
Uh, and so did you agree at that point or did you agree at the point where they actually showed you the large formal paper with all the things you need to sign? Were you already thinking, I trust this friend and so you know whatever it says on this paper, I'm just signing it. And then afterwards, um, how did your friend treat your data? Uh, did they promise you it would be confidential and did it stay confidential, et cetera? And so when you think about informed consent, it's a lot more about your relationship with the individual and your, uh, fulfilling your trust and what you've said uh, you'll do with that data. Uh, so um, you might want to think through if you're in an official institution, does it help protect your respondents to actually get official permission? Uh, my work does uh, also include education, so I've had the joy of getting an official Ministry of Education permission to do my research and visit the schools and talk to the um, individuals. And what that does, at the time I was just very excited because that would mean just about anybody would agree because I have my letter from the Ministry of Education and that would be great. And then now that I've thought about this for quite a while, it also gave them the protection to say, well, he showed up with a letter from the ministry, and so now, you know, if I agreed or shared anything, I, 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 I had, he had official permission uh, to do that. Also, if you're part of what's kind of coming in from the U.S. context, when they're thinking of those individual informed consent forms that someone can sign, is who in the community gives permission for people to speak? Is it each individual person, as we might have a view in the US, or is there a hierarchical dynamic in which you really need to think about, uh, you know, is there a community leader who might say, please talk to anyone in the village? Uh, do you need to kind of uh, pursue some of those um, relationships first before just trying to individually talk to people? Laura Adams has a great piece uh, called The Mascot Researcher. It's back from the last uh, century, 1999. Uh, but it, it does talk about uh, the fact that, you know, she recognizes that she's coming into someone's home, uh, different cultural ideas about a guest, not denying a guest anything. Are you sitting there and you're saying, hey, would you do a survey with me? Are they thinking of me as a guest and I shouldn't be refused? Or are they, and so it's just part of their hospitality, but really they wouldn't prefer to talk. Also, uh, she has a great, different great uh, conversations about status and influence, being a foreign woman, uh, and what types of people that she can access and talk to, and who um, she's not hearing from. And so even though it is an older piece and not, might not be the most up-to-date for what's going on with uh, perhaps security issues, there's dynamics of power and uh, culture that are, are worth considering. So the, the article that I referenced before just from, uh, came out in the latest issue of Central Asian Survey, talking specifically, they were comparing the influence of, or I mean the difference between someone who was from Kyrgyzstan and who was someone from the West, and how they did research uh, related to um, Islam and security in Kyrgyzstan at the time and kind of comparing their experiences and how they accessed uh, respondents, et cetera. They really looked at networking as key 
Networking is important to be able to enter the field because people trust you because of the previous relationships they've had with the people who introduce you into, into the field or into the community. And then also networking also helps kind of protect the people that are um, sharing the sensitive information that they're sharing. So those are some of the ethical keys or tips or keys there. Uh, I promised at the end uh, that I talk about resources. So it had been kind of one of the one of my main concerns as a researcher, and I guess becoming senior, uh, not as junior researcher as I have in the past, is just that a lot of people who study uh, Eurasia happen to be based in universities where they might not necessarily have a centra- centralized access to resources. As I said, most of the time our um, we might have a theoretical interest in the field. Our advisors may or may not be um, able to kind of give you the best advice for the field in general. So I kind of just started compiling things on a, a single website for people to have. So uh, some of the resources I can introduce. I went ahead and worked with some scholars from the region and translated and formed consent templates into Kazakh, Kyrgyz, Tajik, and Uzbek. <laughs> uh, so even though you won't want sign forms, you still sometimes have to have the script and the language can be hard uh, to understand um, how to say informed consent, individual choice, selected at random. I mean, how do you say those types of things? <laughs> so there's a general template. The original templates did come from Columbia University. Uh, and then I have just field work planning resources um, with an ac- access to the CES field work safety report. And then um, a lot of the publications that I've listed, I've tried to kind of just keep an ongoing um, bibliography for you. So a lot of it is you know, to provide resources to the students. There is also within the Central Eurasian Studies Society, uh, their uh, planning uh, pre-conference workshops Um, I know uh, that they're also trying to give a field safety kind of panel just about every conference. Uh, A handful of people are working on that. And so those are um, some of the resources available. So the, as I said, most of it was about putting kind of, putting resources in your hand. And so the last part is just asking if you guys (laughs) have any questions or anything. Thank you.